Tokyo Hempcrest's entire half page would end in 1996. The club went through a lengthy transition phase. They struggled to find a formula for winning the league at exactly the point when Real Madrid were re-establishing themselves as the glamour club of Europe. Managers including Bobby Robson, Louis van Gaal, Radzi Antic came and went, while a series of marquee signings rarely came off. Sound familiar? By 2003, the tenure of President Joan Gaspart was untenable, and he resigned to be replaced by the energetic Joanne Laporta, who appointed Dutch maestro Frank Rijkaard as coach and purchased a certain Ronaldinho from PSG. The improvements immediate and was about to coincide with the decline and mismanagement of Real Madrid's Galacticos. What a fascinating time period we're in, uh, gentlemen. I've got Maz and Pete with me tonight. And, um, you know, th- what really struck me when, when I was researching this was just how similar the period that Barcelona went through before uh, right card took over to what they're going through at the moment. And actually, history seems to be repeating itself in the sense that, you know, Xavi is the, uh, the Frank right card figure here. But, you know, even though they were kind of, you know, finishing second in the league to Real Madrid, doing OK, a few a few kind of um, Champions League runs into the knockout stages here and there. Uh, it was a disappointing few wilderness years for Barcelona. Let's kind of just talk about, like, the impact of Ronaldinho and, and the impact of Frank Reitkard. Like, I mean, do you, how, how far do you think, you know, those two things are a young manager and a a really good marquee signing can do to a club. Well, huge um, amount. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it changes the mentality, you know, a team that's, that's not doing well. One player, one marquee player before he even plays can change the whole mentality of the club, can change the whole mindset of a club and a changing manager for, you know, I, I, I don't know. I I can't remember at the time. I'm sure one of one of you will be able to fill me in on on what the atmosphere was like before Rijkaard came in. But you know, as we've seen a million times, you know, a a, a changing manager can change the approach to a lot of good players and and make them put them back where they belong. Really, get them get them play into their their full potential. And you know, when you bring in someone as amazing as Ronaldinho it's going to make everyone perk up. You know, you've got a player like that playing around you. You've got a, a change in system. So whether it was a case of not enjoying the tactics that were there before or just things had got a little bit stale or, or quite what, a change can be be a big thing. And, you know, that's uh, prob- probably a really good starting point for this Barca team. Just to tag in there and take what Maz was saying about the manager thing. I mean, my recollection is between... Bobby Robson, let's say, and the you know, Ricard era, it's mainly dominated by two stretches of Louis van Gaal and then a few other people who do short stretches like in between who don't last for very long, like Radiantic, his name is coming to my head. And in a move that Man United fans may find quite memorable with van Gaal, there's this tension between Barcelona actually winning things on the one hand, but they don't like him. Uh, he doesn't fit the club somehow. And there's this real tension between, you know, Cruyff and Van Gaal have never got on, for instance. And, uh, you know, Cruyff is that Barcelona way. And, we, you know, you really get into a sense of clubs playing how they're supposed to be playing. And, you know, Barcelona are the heirs to that Ajax kind of style. So when Van Gaal comes in with a, you know, very different philosophy, there's this real kind of tension there. And that leads to a lot of antagonism once the results turn, which obviously they can't keep going you know forever and 
you know, Madrid are spending all that kind of money as we spoke about last week, and eventually, you know, Van Hal starts falling out with any everybody and everybody. Yeah, again, Man United fans may be able to to recognise some of this. There's that wonderful moment where uh, at the end of his spell, he says in the press conference to the media, you know, I'm leaving. Congratulations, as you know, implying that they'd kind of forced him out. And when he comes back for his spe- second spell, you know, the best player at the time was Rivaldo, who'd been you know recently voted the best player in the world. And as soon as they rehire. Van Hal, he's like immediately wanted to get out. So there's this real fractious relationship. And bringing in, you know, Rijkaard, who didn't really have a particularly great reputation as a coach at the time, but who was backed by Cruyff, and bringing in a megastar like Ronaldinho, who'd exploded at the 2002 World Cup. You know, we'd seen what he could do, and he was just astronomically good. It really was a new kind of lease of life. And within 18 months, the the power balance had shifted in Spain. I mean, we spoke about some of the reasons on the Madrid side as to why that was the case, but an awful lot of it has to be just the speed of the turnaround in Barcelona as well. I mean, it's actually crazy when you look at Barcelona in La Liga through this this kind of transitional phase or doldrums phase, because they actually finish fourth in 2000-2001 and then fourth again in 2001-2002 and then sixth in 2000-2003. Barcelona finishing sixth. Now, before Xavi took over, it it, it kind of looked like they were going to do even worse than that this season. But to think of that, fourth, fourth, sixth for Barcelona. And this was the year, actually, where um, where Deportivo La Coruña were were kind of, um, you know, everyone's favourite hipster team and, uh, and doing really well. Celta Vigo finished above Barcelona the year you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's the thing. It's like, Barcelona fans were were, were not going to be accept, uh, accepting that at all. So it's really remarkable. And actually, you know, the the kind of the mismanagement of of the playing squads. And again, you'd recognise that from kind of current Barcelona. They spent a lot of money raiding Arsenal for Overmars and Petit. And, and kind of, you know, Wenger got the last laugh on both of those because they're both not all that great for Barcelona. So you know, they had to kind of Patrick Cliver as as their kind of main focal point through a lot of this time. But they just don't seem to, yeah, they just don't seem to be kind of anywhere near challenging that Galactico team. And then, of course, um, yeah, Ronaldinho comes in. I must say, I I got Ronaldinho really wrong. I, I kind of thought he was a bit of a show pony, a bit like, you know, what people thought about... Um, Ronaldo when he first pitched up in uh, in Manchester like I, I kind of you know he obviously had that really good game against England in the World Cup but because um, you didn't get to see as much European football or you know not, certainly not as much as these days I kind of was a bit sceptical I was a bit like uh, is he a bit style over substance like yeah you, you know lovely watching flicks and things but you know does he have end product and then you, you see straight away in the Champions League when he signs, he, he starts to really turn it on. And, um, you know, very, very swiftly, that Barcelona team is is flying. That was the reputation that he had in Paris, of course, because for whatever reason, things didn't really click for him. So they were as glad to to get rid of him as a sense because he's, you know, an expensive player. And Paris were not the megabucks PSG of today. Uh, they were in kind of a certain amount of financial difficulty at the time, I believe. So they were quite glad to get rid of him and to to bring in people that they thought were a better bet. And uh, obviously it clicked not only for Barcelona, but Ronaldinho, who was able to reproduce that form that we'd seen for Brazil on a much more regular basis after that. Yeah. And, and if you look at the 
you know, if you look at the team around him, you know, I, I'd kind of forgotten. You, you have got a real kind of Dutch spine, right? So Van Bronckhorst, Koku and Davitz, all kind of key players, especially in the sort of the 03-04 season, which obviously is, is Reitkar's first one, where they kind of, they finish second in La Liga. They go to the fourth round of the UEFA Cup. Um, and it's kind of the start of that shift in power that you were talking about. Interestingly, you start to see Xavi and Iniesta and Puyol, you know, that that kind of next generation that would kind of um, take them so far under under Pep Guardiola. Like you start to see them coming through as well. So right card's kind of got um, a sort of solid foreign spine if you like you know um Javier Saviola was a really lovely player actually I'd forgotten all about him and then they start to kind of get that that blend that would see them kick on the next season yeah Javier Saviola championship manager legend I remember back in uh, champ 01 I guess uh, signing him from River and being absolutely mental but yeah very very good player I think it's funny when you look at this is you, you do have that that real Dutch base in there at that point, which is obviously a big part of Van Hal's influence. But, you know, uh, Rijkaard pretty much weeds them out pretty quickly, doesn't he? You know, they're, they're solid part of that team in that first season. But, you know, a lot of them are a lot of them are gone within a year or two. That's true. Um, they're all uh, ageing, aren't they? That's the thing. They're all ageing. I mean, they, yeah. They're getting on, you know. You're talking about plenty of this Ajax Academy here, you know the the, the famous, 96 team, yeah, yeah, who who you know were fantastic, but getting on. Quite a lot of them are have, have got a lot of scars of madness going on over the, their career with the likes of Davids and and stuff like that. And you know, Coco had done a really good job for Barcelona. But isn't Davids through, through those years? Davids only a loan signing anyway that year. Yeah, he, he um Juventus yeah, he, player. Yeah, I think he was still at Juventus at that point. I mean, Davids, by the way, was still with really Spurs and Barnet. Yeah, yeah, but, but, <laughs> the even, Barnets, but even his um even his like weird little Spurs run, he was actually still really good. <laughs> like I think he's a he's a very underrated player historically, Edgar yeah, Davids, I think. Um, oh yeah, he he's my favourite of that bunch, to be honest with you. You know, he's my favourite, but he yeah, I think he probably brought some baggage with him most places, which may not have helped that whole dutch generation were always falling out with each other they they should have won they should have won like a world cup or a european championship for sure but they just couldn't stand the sight of each other and dennis burkamp wouldn't get on a plane and you know like what are you gonna do yeah well, um, that, but i mean but i remember <laughs> the bloody de Boers getting in with one of them missed a penalty yeah in a shootout it's just, that, that's how mad it was <laughs> absolutely um yeah so it's, it's really interesting like, like you say they do start to move out the uh veteran Dutch base now they make a couple of really important signings for the um the next season the season um where they they finally kind of um overhaul Madrid because they bring in Rafa Marquez who was a really really key player for them they bring in Deco from Porto with Deco obviously having won the Champions League at Porto the year before under Mourinho and then obviously Sammy Leto from Mallorca. And, you know, those are players that go on to have very long and distinguished 
Barcelona careers. And then some of the young guys have, you know, a real impact. So Puyol comes in uh, and plays 45, 45 games as a young centre-half. And, you know, Victor Valdez in goal as well. So it's it's really starting to uh, to come together for them. And of course, they they go and get Henrik Larsson from Celtic that turns out to be, you know, you know, one of the great sort of budget super sub slash, you know, utility attacker signings that you could uh, that you could get. Yeah, I still remember when they made that Larsson kind of signing because he'd always been really good and in Scotland and there was by this point the Scottish Premier League was not the league that it had been in the 1990s and uh, there was a lot of murmurings that Larson was far too good for the division and it was still a surprise when he pitched up at Barcelona but within a matter of weeks it was oh, blimey he's really good in one of the best teams in the world still uh, one of the most inspired bit of transfer business I'd ever seen yeah <laughs> but yeah really inspired bit of transfer business that's you just I can't remember the last time I actually saw one like that where it just kind of came off and made everybody look better and obviously he got the Man United spell on the back of that I'd have to say it's, it's funny isn't it because like Henrik Larsson Probably was it's a bit it's a bit funny that Celtic were able to get him from finals really because he had a really good World Cup in '94. You know he was one of the the sort of you know really eye catching players in that Sweden run to the semi-finals. And you kind of thought at that point some of the Premier League would come in for him, and, and nobody does. And he stays at finals, and then you know he goes to Celtic in '97 and is tears up the league. But unlike someone like a Decanio. You know, nobody for the Premier League came and took him, which I always found a bit odd. I mean, I, I can't quite remember if ever there was there was rumours or or anything, really. But, um, yeah, to, for Barcelona to kind of take him as a kind of, you know, guy in his 30s that can still contribute, it, it was a great bit of business, really. OK, so looking, you know, looking at, at their uh, at their kind of 04, 05 season, then they win La Liga for the first time in quite a while but they don't quite do as well in the Champions League that year mostly because they end up in a kind of classic tie against um against Mourinho's Chelsea which I always think is one of the most memorable games of that era mostly because of uh, a certain goal our friend Ronaldinho scored yeah, that we waxed lyrical about when we did the Chelsea episode way, way back in whenever season one happened to be here. Um, that no backlift kind of toe poke almost. It's just, I can just it's painted into my brain. I don't think I'll ever forget that goal. I don't think I'll ever forget that, those two legs because there was some wonderful football and it had that backdrop of of theatre because it was so bad tempered with the the Drogba red card and so on. Yeah, it's, and then the the brilliant comeback at Stamford Bridge. Yeah, I guess it kind of. Would it be oversimplifying it to say kind of the art of the Barcelona system against the structure of the Chelsea one? Or is that kind of too crass a generalisation? I think Mourinho always had that chip on his shoulder about Barcelona, didn't he? Because he he started there as a translator for Bobby Robson. And I think he felt that when he was at Porto, he felt that they they should have come in for him um, Mm. and they didn't. And so... the, this era that we're talking about today, he feels like he should have been the heir to Rijkaard and uh, they're not going to come in for him again either. And uh, I think in, the, in that case, it's probably fair to say Barcelona got it right, given that they picked Guardiola instead. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think that chip on his shoulder that made Mourinho of this era at least great was, you know, was very much in evidence, wasn't it? 
but yeah it was a classic um a classic two-legged tie I remember both of them being heart-stoppingly good really and you know even as a neutral it was it was breathtaking stuff but yeah that Ronaldinho goal I think that was the moment where my you know opinion of forever flipped and it was like you know <laughs> I always I'm always minded to remember um Ron Atkinson talking about Michael Ballack and and you know sort of saying in real time how his opinion had changed of him and, and I remember Atkinson saying you know oh you know I was thinking is he a bit of a stroller is he sort of uh, flattering to deceive? But no, he's a really good player. And sort of, you know, I had that kind of with Ronaldinho in that moment where he uh, he scored that goal. I mean, I love a good toe poke. Who doesn't? But yeah, I mean that that was certainly one of one of the great Champions League ties. Just pulsating football. That one, just absolute continental football is its absolute best. Yeah, not, I mean, and, and, and not only that, like, the thing about Ronaldinho, I mean, that's the cliche, isn't it? But he, he played he played the game to enjoy the game, and he played the game with a smile on his face. And, um, you know, it was, I think, the, the reason I think why now many of us look back on Ronaldinho in that period when Ronaldinho was, was considered the best player in the world with such fondness is because he wasn't a machine, you know, he wasn't a Messi or a, or a Ronaldo. He... He wasn't somebody that was just all about numbers. He was he represented more than that. I think he was the last great, you know, the last world's greatest player that was an artist and and was uh, about more than just results. You know, a lot. I think a lot of the romance has gone out of the game with with how long, you know, Messi and Ronaldo have have kind of gone on as a kind of cartel of two. Whereas Ronaldinho represented something a lot more kind of pure and, um, I guess, fanciful. The thing that sums it up in that one game is it's not just the fact that it's a toe poke and an old bat lift goal. It's the little dance he does with his foot before he sticks it in, like kind of one way, then the other. And it's, it's something lyrical about it in a way that, yes, the way Messi dribbles it and it has that kind of lyrical quality. But I don't know, there is something kind of different in there. And I think this really brings it home as well. You forget he didn't score that many goals in comparison to, you know, the likes of a Ronaldo or or a Messi. And we still, or even a Thierry Henry. And we still thought of him as the best player in the world at the time. You know, if you look, actually, I think his goal return for that season is, it might even be in single figures in La Liga. More of what he did was create. Uh, He was a, a wonderful creator. Eto scores loads on the back of how many that Ronaldinho was able to make with his ability to dribble and put a ball on a sixpence and so on. But he doesn't have that racking up off stats thing, but he didn't need to. You still recognised him as not just elite, but on a, a level on his own for a while there. And I think just to tag in, in there what I was saying about Eto, it was the, the partnership that they formed within each other that really kind of made Barcelona like a frightening proposition. And in a sense, this game in the second round has an air of these were the best two teams and whoever went on you thought was probably going to go and win the whole thing and it was only a goal that maybe was or wasn't depending on your perspective in the semi-final that meant that it went to a team that didn't even finish in the top four in their own league that year um you know the champions league was very very unpredictable but in the second round we got what many people thought of as the true final it's it's one of the great in the modern era when it's been the Champions League as opposed to 
as opposed to the European Cup. It's 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 probably one of the best competitions, you know, the 0405 one, not only because of a game like this, not only because of that classic Chelsea-Liverpool semi-final, which was incredibly tense and all of the shenanigans between Benitez and Mourinho and that one was hilarious to watch as neutral. And then you get that ridiculous final with a great AC Milan side that somehow or other end up, you know, blowing a 2-0 lead to um, <laughs> to a kind of Liverpool side with Vladimir Smitzer and, you know, Milan Barosh and, you know, a sort of, mm. you know, bunch of guys from down the job centre and, uh, and, and they win the European Cup. It is an incredible competition, I think, that year. It's basically the Gerard Houllier Liverpool team with none of the strikers. Which is, you know, remarkable, really. You know, and I, I, it's, it's, it's funny. I guess we'll probably do Benitez Liverpool at some point. But it's, yeah, it, it, it was a remarkable year for it. But, you know, as you say, Barcelona must have felt very hard done by going out in the round of 16 because they were quite clearly, you know, one of the best two or three. You know, probably you said Chelsea, Milan and Barcelona were the best three teams in Europe that year. And, you know, Milan were the ones that, that kind of, you know, ghosted their way to the final without anyone really paying them all that much attention. Um, but, yeah, the next season, of course, they, they meant business. So, you know, in, in 04-05, they win uh, La Liga quite comfortably by, by four points. They kind of uh, managed to finally break the hoodoo. It's been six years since they've won La Liga at that point. Um, and now they want to kick on and they want to do as well in Europe as they did in La Liga. Um, so for the the 05-06 campaign, pretty much the same 11. I guess the, the major difference is, is that Lionel Messi is starting to uh, make an impact. Um, he's He's not quite at the level that he's going to be at under Guardiola, but but he's certainly starting to be a player that everybody is talking about. And I remember by the time we were at the 2006 World Cup, he's starting for Argentina and people are very excited about him. So he's certainly, he's certainly starting to make an impact. Yeah, what you see generally across this whole period is the emergence of a lot of these players that will be the Guardiola mainstays. I think Puyol's already kind of there under under Van Hal, and so he's coming through a little bit earlier. But you see essentially that Dutch contingent that we mentioned a moment ago, they are replaced with Academy products. And this is one of the reasons why they were a more popular outfit. They're always a bit more popular than Madrid generally, without wanting to go into the the politics of it too much. There is a, a good guy, bad guy dynamic in Spanish football that's maybe eroding in the last decade or so, but... Certainly by this point, it was well established that Barcelona were the good guys. A big part of that is that you can see, first of all, Xavi, I think, comes through first. And then it's Iniesta is starting to play. He's still probably appearing more from the bench than starting in this 05-06 season. But you're starting to see him a lot more. And Xavi's becoming much more of a regular. The other interesting one is is, is Mark van Bommel, um, who obviously is a bit more of a combative player. You know, really, really got stuck in. Um, it's quite interesting that they they did need a a nastier player in there, and uh, Van Bommel provided that for them. I always thought. I guess he's the forerunner to what will become the Bushgets role in this team, only a little bit more physical to go with the what was still a slightly more. Let's call. It, I hesitate to call it a dirty era, but I guess that's kind of what it was. 
Yeah. Well, Horrible I guess it's bubble. Hated it, but yeah, perfect <laughs> at what he did. Absolutely, yeah. I, I guess he's uh, he was maybe the um, you know the Nigel De Jong of his time is probably the best way to describe it. That, that that's pretty much perfect, wasn't he? Be- he was, better he footballer was De Jong before, but De Jong. Yeah. Yeah, Van Bommel was a good footballer though. He, he could certainly, you know, his his range of passing was was very good. Like I think you you you, you almost kind of uh, forgot amongst the shit housing that he was actually a good footballer as well. But you know, they did they they had an edge this Barca team. You know, they weren't even Ronaldinho. Do you know what I mean? Like like we were saying uh, the other week about players like Bergkamp and Zidane. Like Ronaldinho is a physical guy. I think mm. you you kind of forget he was like. Over, he was like 5'11", 6 foot, you know, quite quite broad. He could put himself about like he was no he was no shrinking violet. And he moved like grease lightning. Yeah, he was in full flow. He was something else because they I mean, I guess they played like they played a 4-3-3, you know, throughout this this period. And, and Ronaldinho mostly occupied that left wing role, but he was kind of like a left wing as interpreted by a number 10. So it wasn't your kind of, you know, Mark Overmars on the left wing. It was more of your free roll drifting about nominally on the left, but he might turn up anywhere. Which is interesting because that's what Rivaldo fell out with Van Hal about in the first place. Right? He didn't want to be shunted out to the left wing, wanted to play as a 10. Uh, obviously, Rijkaard is a more flexible coach and is able to get more out of the side as a result, you know, indulging some of these talents. Uh, I guess at times we we worry about overindulging these players, but there's also an element of if they're that good, just let them play. And it is a period, I guess, as well, where we're starting to, we're not quite at the point where we are now, where, you know, someone like, um, <laughs> someone like City are playing positionless football, you know, but... It, you know, obviously, as a as a as a Dutch manager, I guess right cards immersed in that. So, I mean, right cards very interesting. I mean, you should probably talk about about him a little bit more, to be honest, because obviously he he grew up, you know, immersed in in Ajax and total football. He played and played for Rinus Michels, winning the 1988 European Championship. But then he also went to Milan and worked under Arrigo Sacchi, who was mm. you know revolutionary high press 442 whole team have to be within 40 yards of each other it was a a really interesting bunch of managers that right card played for obviously he was a brilliant footballer himself and you, you definitely saw saw that at barcelona it wasn't like you know he was completely wedded to the dutch philosophy and nothing else because he'd experienced you know a lot of other things as well yeah, it's a more fluid 4-3-3, isn't it? I mean, I think it's it's going to have to be a little bit more like that when you have Van Bommel and Ed Milson in your midfield. And so a lot of the creativity is going to have to come through Deco, first of all. And then you've obviously got a figure like Ronaldinho playing on your left wing. So he isn't going to be as disciplined as, say, some of those touchline hugging left wingers. Um, we haven't mentioned the guy on the other wing at this point as well, which obviously it will be messy more and more before he starts to take the, the place on the left. But Ludovic Julie, I think, was doing a lot of the, the work on that side in these these first couple of years. And he used to have a pretty good goal return on him as well. Yeah, it's funny, actually. I, I, I He's a player that I'd, I'd almost forgotten about um, because yeah, I guess he was the, I guess, the less celebrated of, of that kind of attacking 
three in that in that Barcelona size. But but yeah, he had like a you know a one in four goal ratio for them. So certainly um, certainly no stats. So I guess he was just unfortunate to play to be a French footballer at a time when when France were the best the best team on paper around. And um, if you were an attacker, it was it was quite hard to get a game. Just to get Maz's take on this, obviously you've sold quite a lot of players to Barcelona in this spell, as Neil said earlier on. Most of it didn't work out, but you're watching Van Bronckhorst play for for Barcelona right up to 2006. Obviously, you've let him go five years or so before that. What's your kind of recollection of seeing him out there playing up to this kind of ripe old age? Yeah, he was he was a good player, Van Bronckhorst, but I think. The biggest problem with Van Bronckhurst at Arsenal is you're never quite you were never quite sure where he should be playing, and where did he spend more of his time at Barcelona? Did he did he end up on the uh, in that left back role? I think so. I, that's yeah, mainly most, where I remember him mostly. Uh, yeah, he was a it was a good footballer, really good passer of the ball, really good distributor. You know, worked hard, but I, I think it, he just never. You know, he he couldn't knock down either of those roles at Arsenal as really as a first choice, whether it be left back or or um, or central midfield. You know, obviously we're talking about an era here with with uh, Gilberto and, and Patrick Vieira. Vieira probably on the verge of leaving here, but we we've got um, some kid from Barcelona coming through at the time who we we stole. Um, one of them who didn't go through their system to make it in, which would have would have been interesting to see Fabregas there as a youngster because he, when he burst onto the scene at Arsenal, he was fantastic. So that was know, kind of that, why he, why he went in a way though is I think he yeah, saw I mean, Xavi and Iniesta, and he you thought know. and he thought well, Arsene Wenger plays the kind of football that I want to play. I'm 17 years old. He says I'm going to get a game. And he did. Why not? You know, yeah. it, 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 you know, absolutely the right move for him when you when you look back at it and and his career. But you know, um, if he if there was a place to get in there, you know, Fabregas coming through was 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 the one going to prevent it. I think. Oh, I mean, it, it's still a couple of years earlier, isn't it? But we, we we've got a very solid base there at that time, and likewise we we've, we've got Ashley Cole coming through at left back when he's there. So you know, it's just. A good player that just weren't gonna quite be first choice for us. So you know, it, it's good for good to see him do do well elsewhere, though. You know. So Barcelona in in the Champions League that that season. First of all, uh, after they've kind of they come through as group winners, so they, they they win Group C in that year's Champions League, and they first of all they get their revenge over Chelsea. Um, so again in the round of 16, and this time Barcelona win 3-2 on aggregate. Um, so they they win 2-1 uh, at the bridge with an own goal from Terry and a goal from uh, from Samueletto. And then uh, back at the the new camp, it's uh, it's it's a one-all draw. Lampard equalises with a, a 90th minute penalty after Ronaldinho put Barcelona ahead. So Barcelona go through. 3-2 on aggregate so already I, I guess they must be thinking you know their their luck's in because their bogey side from the previous season they pretty much just done the reverse of what happened to them the previous season yeah it was a much less contentious game as I recall there seemed to be a lot less I don't know if you could 
maybe a lot less riding on it kind of feels wrong, but it just seemed to be a much more in control for them in the way that the previous year's games always seemed to be just on the verge of flying out of control for everybody. And yeah, I don't have anything like as strong a recollection of it for, for whatever reason, possibly because having won that first leg away, you always felt that they were probably going to, to see it out at home. And that is, I guess, one of the advantages of winning away first up in this in this format. Yeah, and they didn't even need to rely on away goals. You know, they actually did just, you know, just go through on aggregate there. So, um, yeah, it, it it sort of set them up quite nicely because they got Benfica in the quarterfinals and um, they went through very, very comfortably. They kind of, you know, nil-nil draw in the first leg and then they just won 2-0. Um, in the second, um, Ronaldinho and Eto with the with the goal scorers, and and that that kind of set them up with a semi final against Milan. It was quite interesting to think about this, both the Benfica game and the, and the Milan game. Um, they grind it out, so you know that you know both uh, games feature a nil nil leg, and you know this is proper sort of you know George Graham Arsenal stuff really, like a nil nil draw in the second leg after winning the first leg 1-0. Incredible, really, to think about a Barcelona side that everyone remembers as being very free-flowing, actually being able to uh, to batten down the hatches a bit. I guess it goes back to what I was saying a minute ago, when you think of having Van Bommel and Ed Mielsen in, in the middle of the pitch. This was not... Uh, they, they had a really free-flowing front three, and Deco was a wonderfully creative attacking midfield player. Uh, I don't think we've really done him full service in, in the way that we've discussed it so far. You know, he probably deserves a bit more a bit more time. But generally speaking, other than that, they weren't exactly overpowering teams with like 10 men forward. It, it just wasn't that kind of outfit. They were they were balanced in a way that the Real Madrid side that we spoke of last time out weren't by this point. And that's why they won the league uh, at a bit of a canter, to be honest. Yeah, as we talked about last time, Real Madrid had kind of fallen to fallen to bits um, at this point in their desire to, you know, fit ever more name players into a into a starting eleven and having lost McAllady and all and all the rest of it. Um, so in the final, of course, uh, Maz, they yeah. come up against um, uh, Wenger's Arsenal. Now it's interesting because I don't know if you'd say that the o five o six Arsenal team was was Wenger's best team by any means, but not even you know, close, would you? No. They, they were the they were the ones that um that because actually Wenger's teams tended to not do very well in Europe before this, if I remember rightly. I know, you know, I mean, and that's the thing when you look at this year, you think if this if this Champions League final came to Arsenal in like '99 or something like that, you'd look at it and say, right, we can knock on the door. But you know, our only real shot at it came. When when the team run their way out, you know, Henri out the door, Vieira already gone. There was that year where they, you know, the kind of thing fell wide open, and and Mourinho's Porto uh, ended up winning it, where they lost to Chelsea in the quarterfinals, and that was a kind of pick 'em quarter that you probably would say in hindsight you could have won that Ranieri Chelsea team. So there was that kind of one that was maybe the biggest missed opportunity, because that would have been the Invincibles, right? Uh, was was that O four? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or if it was the Porto, yeah, absolutely. But you know, I I think you know we, and and I've always been like that as well as a, a, 
as a fan, you know, it's always league first, league first, league first. You know, if you can win three leagues in a row, then sure. You know, if you can if you can get to that Man City level, then yeah, just throw everything at the Champions League. Why the hell not? But you know, always take that title first. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, it 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 came a little bit too late. You know, obviously Burkamp past his prime there. Like I say, Henri on his way out, Vieira already gone, and it, don't get me wrong, you're still talking about a very very good team here, but not Vega's best team. But you know. We put that run together and and got to the final and and can probably feel very disappointed that we didn't actually win it because it was there for the taking. Although it was always going to be hard after, and this maybe harks back to what we were talking about a couple of episodes back after Jens Lehmann got himself sent off after what fifteen minutes. Well, always that, tough then. That that was it. You know, it was just. It was one of those moments, and Arsenal fans talk a lot. It's one of those things, you know. I don't blame anyone for it. The referee made the right decision. You know, you see people say uh, what substitution should have been made. You know, the referee screwed us out of it. You know, Lehman shouldn't have done that. You know, but it just, it's one of those things. It, it, it just happened. It was just the worst game for it to happen. And, you know, even after that, to go on and take the lead, it's like, hold on a minute. But uh, I, watching that game, I e- even taking the lead, I, I never thought we were actually going to win at that point. You looked at what they had and you just thought, nah, it's just, it's not going to happen. I, th- I think, you know, you, you never like to see a game decided by a refereeing decision in, in, in quite that way. Like, even as a even as a Spurs fan, like the, it, it wrecks the game as a neutral. Well, I say a neutral, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, like it, you know, that should have been a really good game of football and it was a, a not very good game of football. Um, yeah, we, we played some fantastic football in, in, in that tournament. I mean, uh, the Juventus game uh, at home was just fantastic. I mean, you know, we, we, we knocked out Real and Juventus, you know, we had no reason to be scared of um, scared of uh, Barcelona at that point, but they they were always going to be the favourites. And you know, funnily enough, you, you talk about that. This this was very much a gritty, more George Graham like run for us. You know, to that final. You know, beat Real one nil over two legs, beat Juve two nil over two legs, beat Villarreal one nil over two legs in the knockout stages. So, you know, we are not talking about, you know, your typical Wenger here, but, you know, that's what he needed to do to get to a European final. And to be fair to him, 10 men, uh, if we had 11 on that pitch, who, uh, we, we could have 1-0 to the Arsenal all the, way to that, all the way to the Champions League. But it wasn't to be no star for us. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, it, it's, it's well, funny, though. Isn't it like you, you hung on all the way to the 76th minute until Eto equalised, and then you know four minutes later, you know I guess it was just that point, you know, ten men, the exhaustion, yeah, yeah of of kind of uh, you know running around after you know Barcelona was like 70% possession or something. It was always going to be always be pretty difficult. Always spare me. I always kind of feel a bit sorry for Hiraz being the ones to be sacrificed when. Uh, you know, when Lehman was sent off as well. It was a sad yeah. way. Was that his last game for Arsenal as well? 
Could well have been. Did Perez leave that year? I can't remember. Did Perez leave after that game? It sounds Did familiar. He... Yeah, could well have been. So, I mean, well, that's, that's, that's pretty sad, you know, to lose, to lose Perez and Henri both in a losing Champions League final. That's, I mean, I guess it's, well, funny parallel to... Um, to, to my team in 2019, actually, when you think about it. Yeah, um, well, and Burke is not even able to get off the bench. You know, it, it's, you know, there's there's no room for nostalgia in the Champions League final. But, again, you know, should Leb have gone off and played Perez? Possibly. Leb was really good that year, wasn't he? He was. He was very good. He was the heir apparent, wasn't he, really, to Perez? I think he ends up going to Madrid and sorry to Barcelona, doesn't he as well? He does, yeah. I I think the the issue is that if you have just gone down to ten and the side had been picked really to pack the midfield, I I don't think Perez at this point is going to do the kind of running that Kleb was still going to give you. Uh, so that they kind of you know you just put Lundberg over into the Perez position and it kind of picks itself as a four one four four one you know, kind of line up then in a way that thing it is harsh on, on Perez. He's apparently on the record of saying, I couldn't believe it when my number came up, you know, this is my last game for the club. Um, you know, it's champions league, all my family there in Paris and after he says 12 minutes, but it's, it's more like 18 minutes. Um, that is, he sees his number and that was really hard to take. And yeah, I guess that's, you know, you can put him in the hall of fame as much as you want. That kind of does leave a, a sour taste on on after six years no of course yeah you, you know you, you're not going to get over that are you you know it, it's and it's a shame but you know someone had to give way and mm. and it was the right you call know. you know you, you we can say that you don't like to see games decided by refereeing decisions but it yeah. was it was unavoidable it, it yeah. was it, it, yeah you know, sure. it was a red card and yeah. you know we we came from an era where there was a bit of common sense in the game still but that weren't there in 20, you know, it, it wasn't there. A um, really sad not thing rightfully is... so, you know, yeah. if if Barcelona had lost that game because he hadn't got sent off, they'd be like, what the hell? He should have got, and he should have gotten. The really interesting thing is that had he played advantage, I think it, I forget who it is, but a couple of seconds later, somebody sticks the rebound in. So Arsenal could have been 1-0 down, never mind 1-0 up in that game. Yeah, I just visualise it now like it was yesterday. You know, you got Ronaldinho dancing through these tackles in the middle of the park. He slides this ball in, and he did this for Eto so many times. Eto was lightning fast at this point in his career. He's racing through. Lehman comes, takes him out, and I just can't picture who it is over on that right wing. I guess it may have been Julie. Probably been yeah. And yeah, yeah, he just he just whips it in, but he's already blown the whistle, and and obviously then that's that guarantees Lehman's going to be sent off because that era of common sense where oh well at least they've scored i don't have to apply the red card i mean that was already kind of over by then but it sort of guaranteed that there would be no leniency and it was over unless you were nemanja vidic in a league cup final but that's a story for another day <laughs> so following this you know so champions league has been won by barcelona it's their first european cup since uh, since 92 so huge huge moment for them so the next season Real Madrid come roaring back. Um, it's a really interesting league campaign. And I, and I can't think that this must have happened very often. But they both finish on 76 points. And it comes down to head-to-head results. And Real Madrid got the better of the Clasicos. So they're crown champions. God, that's like those drawing lots. Take, isn't it? Semi-finals, Hard isn't it? Take. Although, you know, 
as long as you know what it is going in, you've got nothing, you know, it, yeah. uh, as much as it's hard, you, you know what it is going in, you know. Mm. If they got the better of the results, it would have fallen their way at the end of the day. I, I, I actually like that. I, I think I prefer that to, to goal difference, to be honest. I'm not sure I do, but only from a sense of it feels a little bit more random. So if you just want it to be a bit crazy, I can see why why you'd like it. You see, I don't find it. I find it less random because, because you know, a team knocked in 10 against Celta Vigo or something versus, well, you both finished on the same points. But the two teams that actually did finish on top, you beat them twice or you got a win and a draw. Interestingly uh, enough, Barcelona's goal difference was 19 better than the Real Madrid's that season uh, as well. Of course it was, of course so, it was. Um, and that will feed into the whole rivalry as well, you know. So Which yeah. makes it that much more fun, doesn't it? I will agree with you, Maz, just to say if it is, does come down to one team puts in 10 against, I don't know, you know Cadiz or whatever, then, yeah, fine. It starts to feel a little bit weird that way too because there's no perfect solution. I just think more often than not, it's going to be the team with the better goals for and goals against across the whole season that ends up with goal difference. There's no perfect solution, as I say. It just There's going to be erroneous ones, no matter how you try and cut it. Yeah, I think what the one thing that does come out is that Barcelona were really good this year and the wheels were already starting to come off, which is probably why it explodes quite so spectacularly when it does go up. So I think the thing is, is that, and from... Speaking, or not speaking to Reichardt, that'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? I've just been speaking to Frank Reichardt. Um, just give him a call. <laughs> but, but, but in listening to, you know, interviews that, that Reichardt did around the time when he did walk away, and he's never taken another big job since either, walked away really from coaching at a very young age, as did Ruth Huller, as did Marco van Basten. So those three great Dutch players of that brilliant Milan team, you know, they all had some success as coaches early on and none of them stuck at it, which is quite interesting. And it, it very much kind of brings back that whole line that, that we often use that, you know, great footballers rarely make great managers. And they were all, you know, they all did, did, did well as coaches. And probably you'd say that, that, that Rijkaard was the best of the three based on the fact that he won a, he won a European Cup. But, but none of them, none of them wanted to sort of, I guess, scrap in the trenches and come back from adversity. And I think Reichardt just said that he was so burnt out by those four years at Barcelona that, you know, he almost just didn't want to do it anymore. And, and you know, that's pretty much, that's pretty much what's, uh, what's happened. I think I saw some mad detail that he, I don't know, like sort of spends time at home uh, ordering stuff for his interior designer wife or something. <laughs> with his time these days so sounds like a sounds like a move to me <laughs> yeah so the, the 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 wheels do um the wheels do come off in 07 uh 08 and uh i guess that's it comes to the end of a cycle doesn't it i guess four years is is a unless you're ferguson or or someone like that or brian clough you know that, that has got the capacity to you know to, to keep regenerating teams four years is about the point where it you know you tend to come to the end of that that time I mean, i've seen it recently at spurs of pochettino like you you come to the end of that cycle unless unless you're kind of you've got the the will and the energy to 
to start again or to to freshen it up that's that's kind of where it tends to go isn't it yeah I think it's kind of there's an inevitability to to it we've seen it with the best managers of the current generation they have a cycle and then they need to take a step away and refresh you know how long do Pep's projects last on average Uh, how long do Klopp's projects last on average I think both are probably currently in jobs that have lasted longer than anything they've done before well, at the, the top level Klopp at Dortmund was probably seven or eight years but well how much of it was actually at the top though and how much was dragging them to the top that's kind of what I'm thinking because wasn't there a yeah. good, good spell at the start there where they were you know picking themselves up off the floor really yeah I, I guess I, you know it was a proper project wasn't it that, that mm. he kind of you know he he came in yeah and then they they had that kind of three or four year period I guess when yeah they were in their imperial phase so to speak yeah. and then the last couple of years were more like you know playing second fiddle to Bayern again yeah, and when he was burnt out he was burned out completely and he needed to you know get away and recharge and uh, I think if he hadn't had as as long out the game as he did then I don't think we'd be seeing the success that he's had at Liverpool it's interesting isn't it because Guardiola was a great player and I think people probably forget now that he was a great player because he's been such a great manager but Guardiola was was a wonderful footballer and he's probably you know one of the few really good footballers that's also been you know an absolutely elite manager whereas Klopp of course had had you know he was a second division you know Paul Warhurst basically he was sometimes he was a centre half and sometimes he was a centre forward you know <laughs> um so it's it's I mean they make an interesting contrast for that reason as uh, as as well but um but yeah interesting with right card though that, that he never really came back to elite football management after that no he went to Galatasaray and failed there didn't he which I can't imagine is a club to go to if you really want to rest somehow Turkish football doesn't seem very relaxing to me <laughs> no, that, 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 that'd make you stop wouldn't it yeah. uh, but you know if he's if he's made money, if he's been smart with it, he's got he's he, if he's got a missus that's making <laughs> making interior interior design money for him, you know whatever. Why put yourself through it? Go and enjoy your life. You know, I guess it's probably a bit more of a a, a Dutch philosophy that than, than than most. You don't want to end up looking like Van Hal, do you? So yeah, just sit back and relax. Well, Mark Hughes has just pitched up at Bradford, so I guess that's the alternative. Yeah, well, yeah, quite, you know, and it, it, it's, I mean, you, you, you see it in this country, you know, the, the never-ending merry-go-round of the, these, the old boys club, you know, dropping further and further down the league and then through the leagues and then you end up in Bradford of all bloody places, poor sod. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's a uh, shout out to, to Joe. We miss you, mate. See you soon, hopefully. <laughs> But yeah, I mean it, it's it, it's how it goes, and you know enjoy your you know you've got a good four years, you've won a Champions League, why put yourself through it? You know I guess you've got some people like like your your Mourinho's who, who constantly feel like they are, have something to prove. You know I can't imagine anyone who's managed at this elite level in this day and age needing to do it for the money. You could think of that probably, you know even 10 years prior to that it, it's possible with with these football I mean you know with Rijkaard you're talking about an era of footballer who may have easily pissed it all away you know with 
extravagant spending and 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 not much forethought it, it, it's probably pretty common for footballers of his era but you know uh, that manager managerial level I, I think he was probably he was probably earned earned a decent amount of money over those four years yeah I mean I, I think um of the three it was Hullet that was known as the guy that was out out in Milan every night you know, Van Basten was the one that was in bed at eight o'clock and eight, eight o'clock and, you know, doing all the sensible stuff. And then right car was somewhere in the middle. <laughs> kind of how it was. Uh, I think how I've how I've read it. Um, in Speaking of German somewhere, probably. Um, but but uh, oh, yes. dear me. Right. So uh, we should probably uh, we should probably wrap up. Any 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 final thoughts on uh, on this this Barcelona team? Probably, you know, less thought about. Um, generally than the Pep team that came after them or the Cruyff team that came before them but nevertheless like a very important part of the footballing landscape and I think you know a mid-2000s period which is is one of my favourite times for football I think. Just a really simple kind of final closing thought on on it would be just they don't get the the attention that they really deserve because there's a lot of the groundwork laid for what is that great team that's coming and yes the Guardiola team deserve all the plaudits that they get but I think that it does obscure just how good this team were just how important they were for Barcelona and just how much the neutrals enjoyed watching them when particularly Ronaldinho and Eto together were just flying they kind of redesigned a certain amount of what it meant to watch a football team at this point and reminded you just how fun it could be. Yeah. And, you know, very importantly, I think what you've seen in, in this Rijkaard era is bedding in, bedding in the spine of that, um, of that Guardiola team, the job Rijkaard does with them and bring them through Xavi, Iniesta, Messi, Puyol, you've got, uh, really, you know, you you've got the foundation that uh, you know that Pep's Barcelona team is built on, and they're there, they're coming through, they start to make make an impact in that team, and you know when you add in the likes of Ronaldinho and Eto, it, it's it, it's a fantastic thing. Well, I think that's a that's a, an excellent note to uh, to to finish on. Certainly, some wonderful players that 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 were you know, uh, a privilege to watch. And um, I think as, as, as you said earlier on Pete, like uh, Barcelona at that time and, and really until very recently would have been considered, uh, you know, the good guys of European football. So uh, they were certainly very, very enjoyable to watch. So um, that's us on our, um, you know, our two parts, Real Madrid and, and Barcelona uh, duopoly. So we'll be uh, back next time to, uh, to talk some more classic football. We'll